Okay, this is going to be a part three of the pastor's paradigm. And this is a pastoral leadership training class that we put together. We did this a couple years ago, and we've kind of been just like nursing it for the last <laughs> two years. Right? That's right. Yeah, I think we just forgot. <laughs> uh, I don't know if we forgot. I think it's just... I know. did. <laughs> You're like, I did. I don't know if you forgot, yeah. That's a good admission. Peter. Yeah. <laughs> And so we're going to get into it now, and we're going to pick up where we left off. And so for those that are watching part one, part two, this is going to be part three, and it'll just be kind of a nice, seamless transition. So we're talking about how people matter in the church and why it matters uh, the way we share from the pulpit. And so um, there are two ways people learn in the church, and... One of them is the things that are shared, and the other thing, other way is the things that are not shared. So do you want to elaborate a little bit on those two points of how people learn in a church environment? Yeah, absolutely. So I, the church is obviously designed, and we've talked about this, is designed to be a community of believers, right? A place, almost like a mini mini city if you want to put it that way like a like an actual city that people come to with the shared values and understanding of christ and because of that uh, all communities and all societies and cultures develop what would be called their taboos like the things that are just off topic mainly through just not talking about them so uh if you want to establish a taboo it's not going to be something that you're going to discuss a lot because actually the more you discuss it, the more people will assume, well, it must not be that taboo. So for instance, uh, incest, like how often do people talk about incest in modern day culture? Not a lot, you know, and one of the main reasons is because there's just a firm, this is wrong. And then no one really discusses it. The more people discuss it, the more you would feel as if society is trying to, push towards accepting it or making it less uh, less taboo or less egregious of a, of a behavior or a sin. So the same thing is true in the church community. The pastor, as they discuss the scriptures, as they go through things, they're setting the tone for what topics are okay, allowed, and acceptable, and which topics are not, and they mainly do it through the pulpit. They do it through their teaching practices. So if they bring up particular topics, it makes the other people in the church feel comfortable. They say, okay, this, these kinds of topics are acceptable within the church. These are the things that we're going to discuss and talk about and not fear any kind of repercussion or shame. But if things are just not talked about at all, and if you add on top of that, whenever the topic is brought up in any amount, it's always just one line, this is wrong, or this is sinful, or this is bad. It is establishing a taboo. It's telling people, this is not something that we talk about in church. This is not something we discuss. So you, you don't have to say that from the pulpit. And many pastors that I've spoken to over the years, many pastors that Bo has spoken to over the years, they'll say things like, well, we talk about sexual issues. And what they mean about by that is that every now and then they'll blast pornography or they'll blast premarital sex or maybe homosexuality or something like that. But what they don't mean is that they actually bring up topics of sexuality in positive ways and discuss, well, what kind of sexuality is positive? What kind of sexuality is something that God would desire for his people? 
what does that look like? What does that not look like, right? This kind of intentional, specific dialogue is what gives people the comfortability to know that a topic is not off, uh, off into, as I said, the, the taboos and uh, misuse of society. Yeah, and this, <clears throat> and you just gave a great summary. It's so awesome because everybody knows kind of what's taboo already, right. kind of in their mind. You know, they already kind of have a notion of that. And the Bible speaks of sexual topics pretty regularly right. if you're going through the Bible. Right. And and so the topic of sex does come up, but then it's how it's shared, right, right that you're talking about, how a pastor shares it is going to kind of tell the tale of how that church is going to be educated on these subjects um, or how comfortable they're going to feel about right. these subjects. Right. So, um, you know, it's always funny when a pastor gets up there and they say, for instance, get to a place like Sodom and Gomorrah or Lot having sex with his daughters or Judah having sex with Tamar. And they'll say, like, we're really going to get into some heavy ground here. You know that. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, or that kind of thing. And and that's what we're talking about. It's the things that are shared affect the congregation. Right. Because when you say, oh, this is going to be heavy, like, and what you're doing is you're differentiating that topic right. from other topics. Right. And, and that's what it, that's what educates people of right. like what is taboo and what is not. Right. And it, it so it's, that's uh for instance, yeah. one that I think most people that are in leadership totally understand. Oh, this one, like, I can't really, I don't want to really share Ezekiel 23. I don't really want to read it because right. it's really graphic. Or let's right. not go into Song of Solomon because it's really graphic. Well, right. what does that say? Right. You know, um, about, uh, you know, sex to your audience that you're trying to educate. Right. You know, on right. the topic. Where it is educating them. And that, that's the important thing is right. that it is educating them. Right. So what is not shared is educating them too. So that's the point. It's not just what is shared, but right. it's what that's not shared. Right. And so if a pastor doesn't say, go through a passage and say, hey, let's talk about let's talk about what this passage is referring to. It's talking right. about incest here with Lot and his daughters. Right. And you know what? Incest is prevalent in our world. It's something that's been prevalent in our world all throughout human history. Right. This is not something that's odd even to us as a congregation. Many of us have 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 been uh, molested or we've gone through times of trial incestuously in our families. And, you know, so, hey, we can relate to one another, you know, on this level as humans. You know, then people go, oh, man, OK, I get it. You know, it's like, hey, we've all gone through a lot of this stuff. Right. And, you know, and you can you feel much more like uh, kind of like this isn't a taboo topic anymore. Right. This is something I could bring up. Like if I go up for prayer or if I want to talk to the counselor, I, I know I can talk about this subject in a relatively safe environment because the leader just did. Right. Right. So, right. Peter, what kind of behavioral conditioning do you think happens? The big ones are, as a counselor, when I see people, let, let's start with my premarital load. So when I see various people for premarital counseling, they're about to be married, 
there I'm walking him through Matthew 19. I'm walking him through the aspects of what a godly God glorifying marriage looks like. And I'm trying to get into all the nuances of it and give them conversation starters, basically things that I want them to leave with so that they're talking about it together. And it's things that are going to stick with them through the course of their marriage, things that they're going to be working through as their marriage goes. And one of the topics we discuss is sex. And, you know, me and you talked about this uh, one or two podcasts ago, that it's very rare nowadays that I encounter a couple that aren't having sex in their premarital state. So they're engaged, but they're having sex, they're living together. That's really, really common nowadays. Now, one of the things that's that's really surprising to me when I discuss with them sexual things, and I go through biblically all the passages that speak about sex, all the passages that speak, speak about sexuality, and I ask them, have you ever heard this before in church circles? And they'll always say no. I don't think I've never heard anyone say, oh, yeah, I've heard that. You know, I've never heard anyone say that. They're like, no, I never heard that. Right? I've never heard that discussed. And it's weird when someone's like been in the church for 30 years. Right. And they're sitting down with you and you're you're like, you never heard. That. Right. And some of these people, by the way, this is their second marriage. You know, this is the third marriage. You know, it's not like they're spring chickens. They're in their they're 50s, pros, 60s. Man. You know, yeah, they've been having sex. They got kids. They've been in the church forever and they just never heard it. And that makes me push them a little bit. And we do this in Salvation Army as well, where I'm like, well, if you're not seeing your sexuality from a biblical perspective, what perspective are you looking at it from? Where are you learning your ideals about sex and sexuality? And after a little bit, if I talk to people, especially younger people, they'll admit, well, you know, I'm getting most of my experience and understanding from friends, from uh, just experimentation with my partner uh, through pornography, a lot of them, things like that. You know, this is their education that they're receiving. They're they're thinking about sex through the lens that the culture is giving them. That's how they're understanding it. And with the younger couples, honestly, I'm like, okay, that, that's not the worst thing. I'm going to have to push you guys a little bit to help you understand uh, the biblical perspective but at least from their minds, sex is pleasurable, sex is good. They're thinking through like, okay, what uh, what does feel good for my partner? And they're very open about discussing their sexuality because that's the culture we live in. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's good. And I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's good in a second here. But it's good, but you need to push it a little further and say like, are you discussing God in the terms of the bedroom. Like when you're talking about what is okay in the bedroom, what's not okay in the bedroom, do you ever think about God? Or do you ever think like after uh, after intimacy or during intimacy, do you ever think like, man, like God is so good to put this into my life, to give me this person that we have this amazing and beautiful activity that we get to do with one another that and, and, and it feels amazing and it has the potential to create life. Like there's do those ideas ever go through your head? And of course, they would say no, because God is absent from the bedroom in their mind. So that's that's bad, but it's much better than what I get from older couples. Yeah. So let me stop you before you go to the older couples. Yeah. So the first point that I get is that one of the behavioral issues is that God is separated from sex. So if right. I'm not if I'm not able to communicate properly the Word of God on these issues. In a very uh, um, comfortable way, yeah. then um, I will make people uh, 
assume that there's a taboo around this right. topic to the point where se sex becomes secular. Right. You know, it, sex is harlotry, pleasure is harlotry. Um, it's all prostitution, you know, if you're not procreating or you're just doing it for your duty. Right. You know, kind of thing. So that's one one aspect is you detach God from the issue of sex. Right. And so, like I said, the younger couples, because we have such a sex positive culture. And when I say it's sex positive, what I mean is that we have a culture that believes that sexual autonomy is one of the greatest goods that you can enjoy. And. Again, there's there's some benefits to that and there's some negatives to that, where even though there's a high sex positive message, there isn't any boundary messages. There isn't any sex is really good, but here are boundaries around it so that it doesn't end up becoming a destructive force. Yeah, probably life. the biggest one is uh, um, uh, the one of um, uh, where you agree, you know, we right. agree to have sex. What is it called? Um, uh, you have... Um, you get consent. Yeah, yeah. That's probably the biggest boundary Absolutely. in education. Absolutely. And so, you know, when I'm talking to these young couples because they haven't incorporated God into the bedroom, there's, uh, there's a little bit of a, a hurdle that they got to get over once they get into marriage. Because unfortunately, and this is something that's really played out in statistics, a lot of couples, when they get married, their sex lives go down. And the reason why their sex lives go down is because it's the tension and the uh, kind of uncertainty that's actually producing the passion within the bedroom, mm -hmm. which sounds kind of weird, but that's how some people, they don't think about it consciously, but it is subconscious. Where in other words, my sexual performance, especially for women, is being propounded by the idea of I am afraid that if I'm my sexual chemistry with this person isn't really, really great, they won't marry me. They eventually won't marry me. Once you diffuse that and someone gets married, then sexuality tends to go away because now they don't feel that pressure. They don't feel like, oh, I need to put out because, you know, if I don't, then they might find someone better or something like that. They instead are just like, oh, OK, like we're married, we're good. And then for the man, because he now feels like he's confined to this one person, his pleasure in it can start going away. So unless someone has a framework to understanding the committed nature of God's love and how that produces a passion that's very different than the uncommitted passion that occurs within casual sex, if they don't have a framework for understanding that, the pleasure in sexuality can decrease very rapidly once they get married. Now, when it comes to the older couples, their view is actually even worse. So because they have this idea that God is not really pro-sex and they came from a culture that did not have a sex positive, mes uh, positive message, uh, you know, if they were coming from like the hippie movement, they did. But like for yeah. a lot of these people that I'm counseling yeah, and a lot of them weren't hippies. Right. They're coming from a conservative family that's more into evangelicalism and things like that. So if I if I talk to an older person who's from like the hippie movement or something like that, then they're, they're going to be like the, the younger couple. But for most people, like I said, they're coming that I see they're coming from this more uh, rigid, conservative Christian background. Now, for them, because God is separate from the bedroom, they look at sexuality as something to be completely ashamed of. And you even see it in older movies and things like that. There are certain older movies, you know, like the James Bond movies that were a little bit progressive in their depictions of sexuality. Oh, yeah. But a lot of them, you know, Leave it to Beaver and things like that, they would depict the couples sleeping in separate beds because they didn't even want people to think that these couples were having sex. So if you come from that kind of background, 
And sex is just something that's so taboo that it's not even spoken about in the culture. Then your mindset is, I'm definitely not going to talk about it with my partner. And so there's a lot of women out there that have been taught uh, directly, a lot of them from various ministries. I'm not really going to name right now, but from various Christian ministries that tell them like, hey, sex is kind of like a guy thing. You're not really going to dig it that much, but it's something your husband needs. And if you're not providing that for him, it will cause lust in his heart and he's going to find it somewhere else. Uh, Because of that, also, a lot of men don't know much about female arousal, right? They, They don't know what it means for a female to be aroused or what it takes for them. They kind of assume that women are like men in the fact that they get aroused very rapidly and very quickly. Uh, for and that if they're not aroused, it's very obvious. But obviously, that's not true. People who have been intimate know that female arousal is something that takes a lot more time, takes a lot more effort, and it takes a lot of focus and intimacy to be already occurring. But if that doesn't occur, then damage can actually be done to the woman. Uh, so the this book was released a couple years ago called The Great Sex Rescue, in which they did a survey of this very particular. Uh, vaginal injury that can happen to women and it predominantly happens to women who are raped Mm. so if a woman is raped obviously her body is not ready or prepared or wanting that kind of an intimacy to occur and so because of that it damages that part of them and what they found is that the statistics of women who get that injury and are raped the statistics are really not very different than women who are married in evangelicalism that have sustained the same injury. Mm. That's horrifying to understand. Yeah, but it's it, you could see how, you know, that happens. Right. Right. You could see how that happens because there's there's many many Christian ministries that a lot of leadership are relying on for their um, education uh, of their congregation on sexual topics. Mm. So like a lot of leaders will go like, Hey, I don't really know what to talk about with this topic. Right. And they, they, for some reason just don't, don't know. And so they'll rely on these different parachurch ministries and, and, and then they'll get into this, you know, then it, it becomes something that grows. These parachurch organizations grow and they, you know, have, you know, seminars and conferences and retreats and thousands and thousands of people go to them. Right. And pretty soon, you know, you have this idea that, you know, I certainly heard in the church growing up or growing in the church. And that was, you know, that men are visual, right. uh, you know, stimulated by uh, eyesight and right. that women aren't. Right. And now I never understood that. Right. And I thought it was always bogus just coming from a Southern California <laughs> point of view, my yeah. point of view, but but I, I was really blown away that the church looked at it that way, yeah. that I was really surprised. And just just wrong, you know, like uh, the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, which was a trilogy, made over a billion dollars at the box office. Yeah. Men aren't going to see Fifty yeah. Shades of Grey. Yeah, and there's a reason why lesbianism right. is dominated on the Internet. Right. Um, and it's not by men. Right. <laughs> what what a lot of people don't understand, and they misread the data, what they were referring to is the fact that women tend to like to have a more holistic view when it comes to relationships. So in other words, a man can just separate the act of sex from any type of context, watch it and be aroused and enjoy that. 
Uh, most women can't. Some can, but most women can't. Most women would it's would prefer to see a whole relationship and get aroused that way. So yeah. in other words, they wouldn't want to see just like a sex scene. They would want to see a story in which sex is a part of it. So there are very popular shows right now that are quite graphic that are aimed at women. Women right. are watching them. Yeah. Men aren't. Right. And and I tend to uh, I tend to know that what happens is um, in in the idea of sex, the culture of sex and its education, um, a lot of times, you know, like the education that took place in the church that said men are visual, women right. aren't. That that was much closer to the sexual revolution in the United States and women's rights movements. Mm -hmm. And and women were still very much fighting for rights on many fronts. Right. Not that they're not today, but but back then in the 80s, mm -hmm. it was it was like right up front, you know, and women were still close. You still had women that were living right. on the planet that you know, talking about sex or thinking about sex or even even talking about your pleasure yeah. in sex for a woman would would have been absolutely wrong. Right. And but as now the generations have moved away from that movement back then. Right. That women's, you know, the, the initial women's lib and and sexual lib, you know, that went on in the 60s. I think you 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 people are starting to see more that men and women are very much alike than what we used to think. Right. Yeah, we we our behaviors are very similar. Right. There is some outer differences. Right. If we're doing a bubble, you know, diagram thing. Right. There's some outer differences, but we certainly lust. We're more alike than we are different. <laughs> That's right. We are more alike. And so, you know, I want to get back to the idea of what kind of behavioral conditioning do you think happens? Right. Well, you're talking about it, right? One of them is detaching God from the idea of sex to right. a congregation, right? The other one is having stereotypes right. within a congregation, right? where then you educate your congregation according to these stereotypes right. that are learned by parachurch organizations. Right. And, and then you really don't have a biblical... Uh, uh, foundation really for what you're saying either. Right. You know, um, which and is so it, sad. It's very sad because, you know, you'll talk to some women, especially older women in these counselings and they'll, they're absolutely convinced. They're just like, gosh, I just don't like sex. You know, sex is kind of like my husband's thing. And it's like, well, I, I bet you that you don't like sex. You know, that's very true. With but, him. But yeah, there's, there's <laughs> been a conditioning within your relationship where you just, you just don't like it. You just, first of all, a lot of these women have trained themselves to not receive pleasure from sex. But secondly, they're experiencing it with a partner who is selfish and doesn't even know he's being selfish because he's essentially gotten the green light from various ministries telling him like, sex is about you. It's not about your wife. It's about the way your wife looks because she doesn't have to care about the way you look. And then thirdly, it's just about your arousal and your orgasm. That's it. So this is the kind of information that they're getting that's direct, and it can really destroy them mm -hmm. in a lot of various ways. And this, an unhappy, unfulfilled sexual uh, component to a marriage can absolutely devastate and separate a couple. 
Yeah. Uh, a lot of people think like, no, like that's not a biblical ground for marriage, for divorce. True. It's not a biblical ground for divorce, but that level of unhappiness that perpetuates itself over decades can certainly change people's opinions of one another. And that can absolutely affect their overall relationship. Yeah. And I just want to add that one of the behavioral conditioning that happens is, is just that people will come to your church and they will, they will continually be in um, chains in with this topic. Um, they won't have to be like, I don't mean like they watch pornography per se or anything, but they will just be in chains in general with this topic. It will affect their life forever. Right. You know, if, if you as a spiritual leader can't communicate well um, what the Bible has to say about this topic and, and it will change people's view of God too. It'll, it, you'll condition your, your congregation to think of God different. So for instance, a lot of people look at God and they look at him as more like a stoic. They look at him more as a disciplinary, as, you know, someone who's just saying, Hey man, you know, pull up those bootstraps and get going. You know what I mean? Just discipline your mind, man. You know, they think of God like that, where they don't understand God's a God who's bringing people into the desert and, and wanting to love them and draw them. And you, you won't see a God who's wants to be intimate with you. Not so intimate that he wants to be in you. He, and he actually wants to come upon you right. and you know, he wants to live his life out through you. He wants to reproduce through you right. all these words of intimacy. You you'll miss it all. Right. You'll miss all the intimate terms that are used in the Bible because you now think of God so apart from sex um, that you you're in pleasure, you know, that you, now God is just kind of that, that professor, you know? Yeah. So um, the teaching pastor questions, um, these are ones we wanted teaching pastors to think about. Yeah. Um, what are the confessions from the pulpit that you have heard? So we've talked about that before. Um, are they safe confessions? Why are they safe? We've mentioned that in a prior uh, part. What makes it so difficult to be vulnerable as a pastor? So we want pastors to think about that, you know, in their own life, you know. Uh, what is our number one sin as human beings? So we wanted to kind of help them see something. Um, if we had to pick one, would we want to be seen as morally strong, prideful, or as weak sexual issues to others? which I think what we and you are trying to do is put ministers in kind of a little bit of a spot of going, Hey, I'd rather probably be seen as strong. Right. 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 You know that. And, and the reason why we're trying to, I think with that question, um, you know, share it with ministers is there is something in us that seems like always wants to be strong. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really difficult for us. You know, if we admit a sexual thing, um, you know, it seems like such a big deal. Yeah. You know, it seems huge. And and so it's easy to it's easy as a pastor to look at someone and say, oh, you view pornography, you know. And not look at your own issue of what you've done to your wife, you know, like of the stats that you just talked about with the the vaginal uh, uh, injuries mm. or or how you've hurt your wife in other ways in the bed. You know, what have you shown her? How have you shown her God in that marriage bed? Hmm. 
you know, and those are tough ones. A lot of us want to be seen as really strong people, you know. So sexual issues, uh, I think if we got honest, you know, as ministers, we really shy away from because maybe they reveal something in us, you know, that, whew, if we have to share something or admit to anything, we really um, get knocked down uh, some pegs, mm. you know. And so do you think this plays a part in a teaching ministry, meaning how we want to how we want to see ourselves? Do we think that that plays a part in our teaching ministry in a church of, of how we want to be perceived or how we teach scripture? Hmm. You know, so we want people to discuss that. Are there pastors that you see as strong or weak? Why? So what are some examples of you think a strong pastor and weak one? So we've kind of gone over some of these things. So that ends our part, uh, actually one of that whole uh, series. So part two, we have, uh, it's called, how does sharing vulnerability look? Hmm. And so this is from Romans 7, 15, 25. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, what I, but what I hate, I do. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that is in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. The good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So very popular passage. So how do I share? Uh, we put down sympathize to understand and empathize to share feelings with. Now in that, I do. we do have a clip of you sharing a little bit from the pulpit where you give like uh, uh, kind of a demonstration of sharing. Um, I'm not going to play it because people probably won't hear it too well. <laughs> but but uh, in general, like you've done this many times from the pulpit, but what it kind of goes through your mind. Yeah, yeah. So the reason why we picked out the Paul passage uh, is because what Paul's doing is actually a good template for us. So uh, sometimes we just kind of skip over Romans 7. Some people have made a really ludicrous understanding and interpretation of that passage to suggest that what Paul's doing is sharing a form of testimony. In other words, that Paul is sharing about sins that he used to commit way back in the day, but he doesn't do them anymore. <laughs> There's obviously several problems with that. The biggest one is the fact that he's talking about covetousness. Uh, how many of us can honestly say that we don't covet anymore? We never want anything that doesn't belong to us ever. Never. You know, like that's, that's an absolutely ludicrous perspective on uh, Romans 7. Beyond that, I mean, obviously Paul's writing in first uh, uh, in present tense. All the verbs in that passage are all present tense. There's no reason for him to be doing that. So at any rate, when we look at it as a template, though, we have to understand he's writing a letter, a very public letter to a group of people that he doesn't know. And he is admitting a pretty large form of weakness. He's admitting that there are aspects of God's law that he does not have the capacity to fulfill. That even though he desperately wants to do it, he finds in himself a weakness that doesn't allow him to do it. And then he also says that there are good things that he desires to do, but he doesn't find in himself the strength to actually fulfill those desires. So that's a pretty 
large expression of vulnerability that, again, we don't really get in the church very much. What we tend to hear from the pulpit are admissions of past sin. I used to do this. I did do this. I was this kind of person. But a present tense admission of a failure to uphold the law of God or an, a willful trespass against the, the law of God are things that you don't really hear very much from the pulpit. Now, what Paul is also doing that is very relevant is he is utilizing the message that he is teaching to demonstrate a point through his own frailties. So if you read Romans 6 through 8, uh, so Romans is kind of set up in a really interesting way where there are arguments that Paul is making and then he spends a couple chapters defending and elaborating on them. Romans 6 through 8 are uh, essentially one section where Paul is defending and expressing a very simple point. Romans 1 through 5 is all about we are saved by grace. That is the whole of Romans 1 through 5. We are saved by grace. It is not by works. And he goes and he elaborates on that very, very strenuously. Romans 6 through 8 is, well, now that we are saved by grace, does that mean that we could live whatever kind of life we want? Does that mean we can continue to perpetuate sin because grace is going to cover it? And his argumentation is no, absolutely not. For who we present our members slaves to, that is the one that we will be enslaved to. So if I go and pursue God, then I will train my will and my passions to be more in line with God's. But if I go towards sin, I'll train my will and passions to be more in line with sin. But the false understanding that could spring from that is, oh, okay, so as long as I'm presenting myself to God, everything's going to be hunky-dory and I'm not going to fail. But Paul takes all of Romans 7 to express, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if my desire to fulfill righteousness is present, then therefore I will necessarily do that perfectly. I'm saying the opposite, that the more I attempt to fulfill righteousness, the more I will find how frail and weak I really am. And then that gives birth to a new understanding and admission and acceptance of grace, which is what all of Romans 8 is about. So you have Paul presenting high theological facts, right? High theological perspectives from God of how things ought to be. And then he's expressing, this is how that doesn't work practically in my life. And then therefore I'm now moving towards understanding God's grace in a new way. So if, let me give you an example. If I am as a pastor, am talking about deception, if I'm talking about lying and I go through a passage, like uh, let's say I'm teaching on the life of Jacob and how deceptive he was in the early parts of his life. It'd be very easy for me as a pastor to stop there and just say, okay, so you see that Jacob in the beginning of his life was really deceptive, but he slowly learns how to be a more honest individual. And this is what God wants for us to do. He wants us to be honest individuals. He wants us to walk in integrity and to not deceive and manipulate those around us to get what we want. I could stop right there. And then the understanding that most people are going to get from the, from the body is, oh, Peter doesn't deceive. Like he doesn't manipulate ever. He's got this thing licked. And therefore, if I set my will to it, then I can do the same thing. I could depart from all types of lies and deception. Now, what I should do in that moment is instead bring that home to my life and say, yeah, this is something that Jacob did, and this is something he practiced in his life. He got marginally better at it, but he still, even towards the end of his life, he was still failing. But then I could bring it home to my life, and I could say, yeah, you know, uh, this in this area of deception, this is something I struggle with, especially when it comes to 
when I'm counseling or when I'm uh, preaching from the pulpit, I have a tendency to present a version of myself that is more righteous than I really am. And I'm yeah. doing that because I want to manipulate people's perspectives of me. And I want people to think more highly of me than I really am. Yeah. And that's that's a strong word, that idea of manipulate. I mean, a lot of us would love to think that we don't manipulate. But one thing we have to remember is just that the Bible teaches the heart of humans are, is desperately wicked, far right. above all things. Right. And and that's something we have to realize is that our hearts are this way. Mm. And, you know, there's one thing that you can do, and that is you should be able to understand mm. sexual things and you should be able to um, share about those things right. because those are things that you've experienced in your life as a leader. Right. Meaning, I mean, as a, as a human being. Right. But as a leader, maybe in your home or maybe in the community. Right. Uh, you know, you know what it's like to fail. You know what it's like to mess up. Right. Um, you know what it's like to still want to do good and be better, but you're still not there. Right. And none of us, you know, I always like to talk about a spectrum. Jesus is, you know, on the spectrum. He's at 100. Yeah. I always like to ask people, you know, where where do you think you are on the spectrum? Right. And, you know, and hey, pastor, where do you think you are in the spectrum of being like Jesus? Mm. And, you know, my answer is, man, I don't feel like I'm on the spectrum with Christ. Yeah. There's so much that's just not there. Yeah. And 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 thing is, is we should be able to in our humanity, in our Adamic nature, which we do have. Right. We should be able to understand and empathize yeah. with that part of uh, that. There is a there is so much in us. Right. That is in contention. Right. With the righteousness of God. Right. And and though we subject our bodies and though we bring it into sub, submission, we don't do this perfectly. So we should be able to, you know, take whatever we're working on as a minister, hmm. whether it's food, whether it's drink, whether it's pride, right. greed, those things. Right. And and move it into even the sexual area and just and, and we could say, hey, I mean, if you don't if you've never viewed pornography, you know, like some pastors, well, it's good to say, hey, you know, I've never viewed pornography, but I know what it's like to lust after things, you right. know, I know what it's like to, you know, spend your money on something instead of really using it for another good purpose, you know, showing your failures. I think that's something that um, we need more of. So we're not talking about sharing as in spilling your guts. That's never what we're talking about. We've referred to that in past uh, teachings um, in this pastor's paradigm uh, instructional uh, podcast. But uh, so we don't never mean that. We right. never mean going up there after you got in a fight with your wife and right. be like, man, I just, no, nothing like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. We mean within your Bible study, right. within your Bible study, as you're talking about Jacob, as you're going through a passage of scripture, when you see their mm. sin, you should be able to say, hey, this is in all of us. Right. And this is in me, too. Right. You know, that kind of idea should Absolutely. certainly be there. And so what we also see from Paul is that he doesn't feel the need, like kind of what you're saying, Bo. He doesn't feel the need to be like, yeah, the other day I was hanging out with Timothy and I was super pissed off at him for doing this. And, you know, and he's like spilling all this like really specific juicy gossip. Yeah, or I walked through Greece. Right. And I saw a bunch of naked statues. Right. <laughs> I was lusting <laughs> And I was lusting, yeah. It's like he could have done that, but he doesn't. He keeps it very reserved. He's yeah. like, 
what do they need to know? They need to know that there is a frailty inside of my flesh that exists in all flesh. And therefore, again, that moves into Romans chapter eight, which is very important as well, because, you know, we as pastors talk often that the the principles of teaching sermons are laid out for us in first Corinthians 14, the gift of prophecy for all prophecy is given in edification, exhortation and comfort. So if I want to bring about comfort, where does that comfort come from? Well, comfort arise, arises in that little excerpt from Paul. It arises from the need for forgiveness that is produced by the frailties of the flesh, right? People can't really receive that comfort part of my sermon unless I have presented them a reason to be uh, comforted, like a need for comfort from the Holy Spirit. If I'm telling people like, Hey, this is something that we ought to do as Christians, and we're already doing it. You know, you don't need to be comforted after that. You only need to be comforted when there's an expression or an exhortation towards good that people know in their hearts, I'm not really doing that. I'm not really fulfilling that in the way I know that God would want. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, well, none of us are, but this is the grace that God has given us, not just to forgive, but to also empower us to do better next time. Yeah. So in order to comfort people from the pulpit, you have to give them a reason to be comforted. Right. Right. And therefore in your messages, you're going to have to share the right. failure. Right. You know, and, and it's not just their failure, the congregates failure, right. but it's your failure. Right. You know, that you're under disgrace too. So our next slide is how can you be vulnerable in using this passage? So we give people a passage to work through. Yeah. And, and this passage is James one fifteen. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Mm. So just that passage alone, we want pastors to look at and pick it apart. But then also, how, do you, how, are, how can you be vulnerable mm. in using that passage? It talks a lot about sin and obviously this desire. Yeah. Right. Which what a, again, what a universal passage. Yeah. You know, all he's talking about is sin in a very general sense that yeah. sin begins in a particular way, begins in the desires of the heart and then it moves into the the will and the intellect. And then from there, it gives birth to death, meaning that you actually begin to act upon it. You know, it's like if you can't relate to that passage in some way, then you're not paying attention. Yeah. Right. Then you're not paying attention to the frailties of your life. Yeah. And, and can you can you bring up a vulnerable part of your world yeah. where you see this desire, you see how it gives birth to sin, mm. how you do miss the mark of Christ, yeah. how you, you see that it, it brings forth a death, it brings forth an action mm. that results ultimately in separation from God if it weren't for his grace and his mercy in your life. Yeah. You know, it would ultimately be a transgression that brings forth death. Right. You know, and, you know, can't you see that in your own life mm. and, and, and be able to share that with someone, you know, and share it in a general way right. with the public right. that, you know, I am not, I am a sinner yeah. and there are things in my life where I see desires that lead to bad behaviors right. and that I need to learn how to walk in a better way as well. You know, so we want people to kind of see, use that passage and try to find, see if they can show a little vulnerability right. there with other people. And that might be tough for some people to do. Yeah. So is there a place in this commentary where more vulnerability potentially uh, could help the reader? 
Okay, so here we have a, like, for instance, a, a commentary on the passage that we just read. And this says, example one, uh, though sin does not always cause physical death, the very nature of sin is to injure, harm, and kill. Sin results in the death of honor, respect, trust, morals, innocence, dreams, and goals. Marriages are broken, innocent children are devastated, and lives are shattered when individuals refusing God's way choose instead to fulfill themselves apart from him. Victory over our flesh and the pull of sin is only possible when we determine moment by moment to abide in an intimate relationship with Christ and walk in the Spirit. This relationship with God does not just happen, but is a continual act of our will, choosing to offer our body, mind, will, and emotions to God. We must admit and acknowledge our own depravity, that we are hopeless and helpless without Him, to depend upon Him with the assurance that He will be faithful hmm. to receive and strengthen us. Mm. So here's a, a commentary that I find pretty cool. And, and, and I'll share just my points about it. And then you could share maybe something with it too. Mm. But I, you know, the first part of it, um, you know, it's pretty much just very factual. And, and this is what we want pastors to see is that a lot of times we focus just on like facts. Right. Right. And so, you know, Hey, sin doesn't always cause physical death. And he goes into it and, and he doesn't say anything about him. You know, there's really no him in it. Um, he says lives are shattered. He doesn't say my life is shattered. He doesn't say, you know, nothing about his own personal life. He just says lives are shattered. We, we do that at the pulpit a lot, <laughs> you know, yeah. right? Yeah. So that kind of, uh, dis we distance ourselves from the passage. So we'll say lives or other, your lives or things like that. What do you, we don't use we, we use you. Mm. Um, and so those are ways we distance ourselves from a passage of vulnerability. Because if I'm using we, mm. that means I'm including me. Right. But if I'm using you, right, then I'm distancing myself a little bit from it. Right. And, but I like how he, he does, when he gets to the end, it seems like he comes to this place where he says, we, now he starts using the we, yeah we must admit and acknowledge our own depravity. Hmm. So I, I, I thought that was a good example hmm. of, you know, a place in the com, uh, a commentary, you know, a lot of us pastors read commentaries where we see, you know, vulnerability, you know, in the writing of the commentator can really help someone who's, who's, you know, reading it, hmm. you know? So the author helps the reader because he, he's saying not only, you know, what the facts are, but he's also saying the we too, you know, I think he could have went further in that myself personally, hmm. you know, but I don't know. What's your thoughts? No, no, I, I, I'd like that one as well. You know, uh, the way he expresses it and goes over it and, and what that shows is obviously that's a, a small excerpt from what he's doing, and it's a written commentary and not necessarily a, a sermon. And that, that is a big distinction. I like what you said that, you know, we tend as pastors to like to go through more intellectual ground when we're studying scripture. And you got to remember, you know, the, the reason why 
we as pastors are up there teaching in the first place and not just telling people like, hey, you should read that book. You know, like <laughs> you should read you should read this commentary because it's really, really great. Uh, the reason why we share is not just to download to people an audio version of the commentary that you read uh, because you're assuming that your flock is too lazy to pick it up on their own. You're doing it because you're adding the human element into it. This is why God relates through man. You know, this is always what he's doing is he's taking people's stories and he is allowing those stories to proclaim the gospel within it. Right. Otherwise, yeah, it would be pretty cool if we all just went into church and all of a sudden a disembodied voice spoke to us from the scriptures and just illustrated things from God's perspective. Would that be very edifying? Yeah. But would it be very hopeful? No. Yeah, because we could all go into a church and just put on YouTube right. and put it up and go, who's the best teacher we want right. to listen to right. today? And just put it on. And <laughs> yeah, man, you, you might leave there thinking like, wow, that was heavy. That was deep. But when you disengage the human element from it, it's no longer a, a sermon. It's just a lecture. You know, it's just a disconnected lecture from someone who doesn't care about you and doesn't feel the comfortability to relate their story and to help you understand your story through theirs. You know, yeah. that's that's the importance of it. And that's that's a great point. So we hope that becomes like a, a, this this commentary on James 115 becomes like a uh, a little bit of a talking point mm -hmm. for leadership to get together and discuss that. So we're going to stop there. <laughs> Thanks for listening.